Oh, Lucy, I want to squeeze you like a lemon. Oh, Ruddy, I want to annex you like Uruguay. Sorry, Dabney, I'm really not into this tonight. So I've observed. It's not me, is it? No, no, of course not. Never. But do you think maybe it's time we added some third parties to our love life? I've been waiting to hear you say that, Paige. In fact, I've been doing some research. You have? Dabney, why didn't you tell me this before? Because I was too cowardly to admit to my infatuation with a certain Eugene fellow. Wow. How long has this been going on? Years, I must confess. I even bought handcuffs. Hmm. I'm starting to like this Eugene, too. When do I get to meet him? As soon as I can memorize his speech opposing America's entry into World War I. Wait. You mean Eugene Debs? Of course! Eugene McCarthy wasn't even a major party nominee, let alone for a third party. I think we have different definitions of third parties. How else would you describe the socialists? Paige, a third party needn't win electoral votes to have an impact on an election. I hope you can be more open-minded. Um, yeah, sure, of course. You know... If we do the Equal Rights Party, Victoria Woodhall had two husbands. How are we going to handle that? With both hands. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, a special episode about political parties that are neither Democratic nor Republican, some long gone, others still clinging, and some of whom even left a little of their DNA in our political scene. Presenting The Third Wheels, Part 1. We continue to thank you for your continued interest and ears for DB Comedy Presents the Electables. We are coming up to the end of all of the presidents that America has had up until this moment. But we're not quite there yet, and any help that you can give us, or any thanks you would like to give us, would be appreciated. If you haven't, please subscribe to DB Comedy Presents the Electables on whatever marketplace you are listening to this podcast. Also, don't forget to like and recommend so more folks can listen. If you like what you hear, please leave us a tip or a donation, if you will. Go to fracturedatlas.org and look up DB Comedy. Fractured Atlas is our fiscal sponsor. Any tip or donation you leave us is tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. Please keep supporting us because we are plotting life beyond the presidents, and we'd like you to keep listening. Thank you. Well, hi, folks. Um, So for those of you listening, first of all, as always, thank you. And for those, depending on when you listen to this episode, we, those of us who record the episode, 
are at a point in the episodic structure where we are ending the 20th century, going into the 21st century, and going into an election where the two predominant parties happen to have a little bit of a thing happening with a third party. So we sort of thought, huh, this was that wasn't the first election where that happened. And since it's one of those things we haven't quite talked about extensively, let's let's talk third parties. So hey all, we're gonna be talking third parties. Can we get a yay from everybody recording? Yay. yay. Cool. All right. So I'm Joe, of course. Uh I'm Paul, naturally. I'm Tommy, por supuesto. I'm Sandy, don't you know? And I'm Patrick. Oh, I'm Chelsea. And I'm James. All right. I don't have anything witty to say. Our, our credentialed that. historians. Our traditional historians. I'm Chelsea, yeah. PhD. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so on the one hand, there are a lot of them by number. On the other the influences are very wide and varied. And on the third, third parties, aren't there only two? Barely, depending on what you listen. Justin <laughs> James and everybody else. I will throw out this first question. It's not the inflammatory yet, but it's, I was going to say, I'm shocked that you're starting off the discussion. question. The uh, Federalist and Anti-Federalist parties, how... Were they actual political parties or were they just kind of de facto names for schools of government, schools of political philosophy to which, say, Jefferson or Adams, your boy John Adams, Chelsea, were attached? Okay, I guess I'll... I actually just randomly watched a video on this, so I feel reasonably well-informed on this topic. But it seems as though... From what we can glean from things like the Federalist Papers and, and the writings of the people uh, who you made the Constitution, that while certainly the idea of factionalism was understood to be a kind of permanent part of politics, that there would be, for any given issue, a party in favor of something and a party against something, the idea of permanent political institutions kind of at perpetual con- competition with each other was not something that was really envisaged by the framers of the Constitution. It kind of strikes me as curious that that was the case, because while they weren't really modern political parties, the British parliamentary system, which of course anyone who had been framing the Constitution would have been familiar with, had at this point been fairly settled into two camps, the Tories and the Whigs. And while they're kind of Fill it. And it was it was more like class camps than it was necessarily ideological camps. Those factions did exist and were kind of competing to the extent that there was real political competition in British parliamentary elections for influence, for the ear of the king, for things like that. So party systems, to some extent, were in their infancy, but the framers seemed to feel like on any given issue, people would take sides. And then when that issue had subsided, whatever new issue would come up, people might be predisposed to take different sides, but that these weren't something that would coalesce into permanently opposed camps with permanently opposed philosophies. When we talk about Federalist versus Anti-Federalist, we we have to be careful because the Federalist versus Anti-Federalist is really just about the adoption of the Constitution itself, right? And so then once the Constitution is adopted and pretty much, and, and then the Bill of Rights is ratified, 
that more or less becomes a settled issue. You don't, even though you have opposition to the actions of the government in the 1790s, you don't really hear a lot of people saying, let's scrap the Constitution at this point and go back to the Articles of Confederation. Pretty much by the 1790s, people are like, okay, the Constitution's a thing. What happens then is, is kind of the basically Hamilton. And I think we really could lay a lot of this on Hamilton because Hamilton's the one who really says, Hey, okay, we got a government. Let's let's use it. Let's take this thing out of the garage and let's put it on the interstate, baby. Those are his and, exact words, too. Yeah, yeah, and they were like, "We should probably build that interstate." He's like, "Good, the federal government will be on." <laughs> yes, exactly. So, exactly. How, did, so how did Hamilton turn into hip hop instead of Motown? It's like I'm sitting with Lin Manuel Miranda himself. <laughs> I, I, that may be one of one of our great tragedies, actually. <laughs> so he he really kind of starts saying these are the things that that government needs to do and it's and it's pretty much immediately polarizing right you talk about the assumption of debts which created a you know regional schism because a lot of the southern states virginia in particular had paid down their debt northern states hadn't tariffs become a issue because of course the northern states were trying to kind of build or rebuild their industrial economies the southern states were dependent on you know wanted to be importing goods from the south or from europe at you know cheap rates uh and then the bank of the united states which wasn't necessarily having the same kind of regional influence but certainly was something where the conspiratorial mind of Americans, which is something that does go back to the 18th century, this kind of conspiratorial style in American politics, oh, immediately hell yes. <laughs> attracted, the, you know, kind of people got their hackles up about that. And so that kind of coalesces. And never an issue again. Oh, not at all. You know, the, all three of those things start to attract real opposition from those people who feel like Hamilton's ideas are going much too far, are, are elitist in nature. And I don't necessarily know, like, while I more or less sympathize with Hamilton's goals, I don't think that the criticisms of him are necessarily wrong. I think the posses were elitist in nature in many cases, or at least, uh, you know, we're going to help rich people probably before they helped poor people. But nevertheless, that is kind of the moment. So Hamilton says, these are the things we want to do. And basically that, like, created an immediate reaction between those people who said, Oh, it sounds like a decent idea to me. And those people who said, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, Constitution, fine. But this is not what we had in mind. This is getting way too much into stuff. Just like we talk a lot about, like, historians hate engaging in counterfactuals. Historians also don't want you to put yourself in the shoes of the people that we're talking about. But humor me for a second, right? Um <laughs> if you sort of put yourself in the context of the moment, right, we have just fought a war with Great Britain, largely over the centralized power over their colonies. And it is very unnerving for someone who has just gone through a war in which they might have lost a family member, they might have been injured themselves, they might have lost property, right? They have lost a lot, um, they've put a lot on the line. And it is, can be unnerving to have these ideas about a strong centralized government, right? A strong centralized, nationalized financial system. And so I understand very much and can sympathize with 
again, like James said, Hamilton's ideas, right? We are coming out of the, the America as a nation is coming out of a wartime period, right? Nationalization and a strong federal government might have been a necessity, right? We can look to the United States at other war times for similar uh, sort of models. But there are people, especially agrarian Southerners, states' rightists, again, never a problem. Southerners never are going to argue for states' rights ever again, that they look at these elitist, highly centralized policies that are being put forth by Hamilton, Adams, Washington, though he's like, I'm not part of any party. But, right, he's certainly not telling Hamilton to stop. Hamilton at one point suggests that Washington should serve a life term. Right? So, George, I suggested right? a life term for many presidents, but I meant something else. So quick mm-hmm. tangent. Alexander Hamilton, crypto monarchist or no? Correct, yes. Hamilton would totally have been a crypto bro. I meant secretly a monarchist, but being into crypto, yeah. Also, yes. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, all all of that, yes. And so this is honestly like why I know we're we're still talking about the Federalists, but this is ultimately why you have the Democratic Republicans form in opposition to the Federalists in the 1790s. I think there's an interesting, if we're talking about like party dynamics, yeah. in some ways, the Democratic Republicans are actually more organized than the Federalists. And it seems like it would be oh, the yeah. opposite. But it because the, the Federalists are basically the guys who think alike. They're just a club of people who are thinking along the same lines about Some like, old oh, yeah, white we need men. to establish all these Not things. Just people, mm-hmm. old white men. Right, okay, but the other side was also old white old men. White at this men. point in time, we're not going to find a lot of government. There were some young white men in there. I, I mean, so. true, but later in life, most of them turned to become old white old men. Old white so, men. I, I, I think I need a source thing. on that, Tommy. Here's the inflammatory question, Thomas everybody. Jefferson. Only a matter of time. Here we go. The two-party system derives from the election of 1824. Debate. Ooh. From what everybody's been talking about, though, we want to talk about third parties, right? But, and, uh, but for, right for now... Our listeners, for our listeners who are bad at math, uh, that was John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson. <laughs> so far, what we've been talking about is one group with power, one group without Thus, you already have this sort of binary system that if we fight from a political perspective, from what everything we've been describing, it's a, it's simple binary. People who have power, people who don't, and politics is where you try to wrestle, wrestle that power. So, Where's the other plus one? I guess this is where I'm going to talk about the, the structure of the American political system, right? So one, the way the Constitution is written and the way basically all state legislatures work as well is that we have one single member districts. So for any given district, you elect one person, right? You can say that like the U.S. Senate, there's two people, but there only one is ever up for election at any one time. So it's really just one person for that Senate seat is up for election. And so you you have single member districts for state legislatures and for Congress. One person is going to get elected. The other thing that you have is you have first past the post voting. 
whoever gets the most number of votes wins. And we don't really have, we don't have runoffs in the United States for the most part. There's a few places that kind of have weird rules that do. And and I think more recently is some states have started to fiddle with like ranked choice voting and stuff like that. But for most of the U.S. history and in any state legislature and all states for Congress, when you, you vote on election day and whoever gets the most number of votes, whether that's 60% or maybe 38%, right? If you do have a lot of people running, that person wins. And then what you have is you have what I think is the cultural oppositional style of American politics, which is there's a group of people who want to do something. And then there's a group of people who don't want that to be done. Right. And the many of our political issues resemble this where it's, we want to build a national government. We want to abolish slavery. We want to expand welfare. We want to, you know, you name it, all the things that government has done over the years. And then the people who are kicking and screaming and saying, no, please, no, don't do that. And so when you go on election day to vote, okay, if you are someone who is generally in favor of those things being done, you, of course, want to cast a vote for the candidate who's most likely to do those things. And you want to cast your vote against the person who's going to stop those things from happening. But I think probably more powerfully, if you're someone who wants to stop those things happening, you want to make sure you're casting your vote for the you know, for, for the person who is most likely to defeat the person you fear. And I think for many Americans, this is the this is the hard math that goes into choosing who you're going to vote for. You don't vote for who you really want. You vote for the person who's most likely to defeat the person you most fear. And that is why in 1824, as I've been reading the autobiography and multiple memoirs of Thurlow Weed, the... <laughs> Nice. The titles seem very interchangeable between uh, Democrat and Republican and National Republican and Anti-Federalist. The two major distinctions were Jackson men and Adams men, though it being John Quincy Adams. So you have that dichotomy talking. I mean, so Jerry, you talked about people in power and out of power. Both Jackson men and Adams men, and yes, they're all men, had their power bases in 1824. So eight by 1828, you had the out-of-power base, a bunch of rural white men, but not in the South, in western New York. As soon as we had two, uh, two main political parties, we had a third party, the anti-Masons. Now, I want to float an even crazier theory that Ooh. original two parties of the United States are not the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, but are indeed Virginians and the Adams family. Presidents <laughs> <laughs> are, you either have an Adams or you have a slave owner from the same area of Virginia. Discuss. I mean, it's a pretty rock solid argument. Ain't yeah, because- Numbers add up. So, well, when you think about it, again, sort of in a primal way, why political parties? Why do they exist at all? I think we've mentioned the two basic ideas, one, a group of people that seem to think alike about abstract ideas, a theory of government, a way to do business, or a group of people who want to do some something and want to get power to try to get that done. Tommy, when you mention Adams, there is that third way, or one of those third ways, which is that guy, him, yes, him, mostly him, occasionally her, but in this case, him, him, 
I think you're also missing maybe the most like primal reason, which is uh, fear of the other. That's how most groups construct themselves. Oh, I was thinking drinking, but okay. Well, all right. Both that were one. present at the formation of the anti-Masonic party because two no. most non most non Masons Masons were the other because they kept their rituals and their silly costumes secret. So, on the night of September twelfth, eighteen twenty-six. And a general ne'er-do-well in western New York named William Morgan disappeared, allegedly abducted and murdered by Masons. Political opportunists seized upon seized upon his disappearance to direct their to direct popular ire against the clique that was more or less ruling the state of New York, the Albany Regency led by Martin Van Buren. Who we'll never hear from again. The all-powerful <laughs> Martin Van Buren. The MVB, if you will. Mm. I don't well, think I will. First, that was our first third party. They were powerless and they were paranoid. His name was William Morgan. His name was William Morgan. His name was William Morgan. Hello, good sir. Welcome to the Anti-Masonic Convention. My name is Millard Fillmore. Yes, I'm certain it is. Mr. Fillmore, your pamphlets are quite misleading. I was under the impression that Supreme Court Chief Justice Marshall would be speaking at this event. Why, he's been speaking since this morning. That's him on that rocking chair in the corner. Marbury v. Madison, McCullough v. Maryland, Milk v. Meat, Mustard v. Mayonnaise. Oh, dear. A pity that the authors of the Constitution didn't see fit to impose term limits on Supreme Court justices. His name was William Morgan. His name was William Morgan. His name was William Morgan. Beg pardon, but who is this William Morgan fellow? William Morgan was a third-level Freemason in Western New York who picked the group and was going to publish a book exposing all the secrets of the order. The members of his former lodge accused him of treason and vowed their revenge. In September of 1826, Morgan disappeared from a jail in Batavia where he'd been imprisoned on a false accusation of theft. Some say the Masons banished him to Canada and killed him. And some say that would be redundant. Uh, Fillmore, I hope you know that many of America's most prominent men are Masons. That's why we must fight them. Do we really want our leaders beholden to a mysterious organization that demands unswerving loyalty and practices strange rituals? His name was William Morgan. His name was William Morgan. You're right. That's a terrifying thought. Uh, anyway, good seeing you again, Justice Marshall. Nelson v. Napoleon. New Hampshire v. Nefertiti. Niceties v. Ninkumpoopery. Anyway, good luck with your... Uh, say, you look familiar. No, I don't. Uh, I'm just a plain, ordinary citizen of Baltimore. I can't possibly look familiar. Is your name William Wirt? <laughs> uh, yes, but uh, what's in a name? 
You used to be Attorney General of the United States. Uh, oh, so were a lot of people. Listen, I really must. Hold on, hold on. Mr. Weed, look who's come to the convention. Why, if it isn't William Wirt, as I live and breathe. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm Thurlow Weed, a scheming, unprincipled newspaper publisher from Rochester, New York. Now, that's hardly fair or accurate. I've moved to Albany. So glad you could join us, Mr. Work. Of course, you've plenty of free time since General Jackson fired you from the cabinet. Must you mention that man's name? Who? General Jackson? I see we have a common enemy in General Jackson. Speaking of General Jackson, did you know that General Jackson is master of the Masonic Lodge of Tennessee? If so, that's hardly the worst accusation that can be hurled against him. Tyrant and murderer are more damning. What a pity that General Jackson might be re-elected next year. Mr. Wirt, we could use a man like you. As what? A human sacrifice? No, as a candidate for president. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. I'm not qualified to be your candidate. I was briefly a Mason. But you repented. People love repentance. And I'm hardly a compelling or commanding figure. You honestly think people would elect me as president? Why not? This is America. Any man can be president. How I pray that you're wrong, Fillmore. What is your platform, Weed? That the government should erect a memorial on the grave of this William Morgan person? That would be rather difficult, seeing as his body has never been found. Then why would you spread this unsubstantiated rumor that he's been murdered? Are you so determined to inflame the passions of know-nothings like this Fillmore hayseed? How dare you, Wirt! As a native New Yorker, I'm a rube, not a hayseed. You're doubtless aware, Mr. Wirt, that rubes and hayseeds vote. And we're going to need votes if we're going to return that madman Jackson to the hermitage. Think of it. No more threats of military action against states. No more vetoes of national bank bills. No more forced relocation of Indians. So, would I be correct, Weed, if I accused you of exploiting fear and ignorance for political gain? Why not? After Jackson is out of office, it will never be a problem again. Do you have any better ideas for ridding the country of the curse known as Old Hickory? It would be foolish to divide the opposition to Jackson. We must all unite behind Clay. Clay who? Well, Senator Henry Clay, of course. He could win. And you call me a know-nothing. Nonetheless, I must defer. Well, then, I guess we'll have to find another candidate. Uh, Fillmore, perhaps you should run. All right, all right. I'll do it. My fellow anti-Masons, may I introduce our nominee for president, Mr. William Wirt. His name is William Wirt. His name is William Wirt. His name is William Wirt. I'm still available to be vice president. 
I'm quite certain you're not even qualified for that job, Fillmore. Pennsylvania v. Python. Peach v. Persephone. Penelope v. Persephone. You can say that Adams and Clay were cut from the same Democratic-Republican cloth. They shared similar ideas. Clay was molded. (laughs) They shared similar ideas. And essentially, at that point, they're just fighting over the votes, over who likes John Quincy Adams better than Henry Clay. It comes down to the man at that point, not the ideas. I think 1824, though, also shows the folly of multipolar elections because three of these guys are like, Andrew Jackson's a madman. Yes. And then they all split the vote apart. Are you kidding me? Four of them are like, Andrew Jackson's a madman, but only one of them says it in a positive way. (laughs) (laughs) And that was Andrew Jackson. And that was Andrew Jackson. He's like, yeah, that's me. Later in life, he would challenge a mirror to a duel. (laughs) And the mirror won. Part of this is, it's interesting, as we're trying to figure out the origins of a third party movement, we really are kind of debating, well, when did the first two parties or two parties that we kind of recognize actually get created? Because you can't have three without two. Yeah, but I wonder too, like, you know, when we were talking about the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, those are two parties that are in opposition to each other, and there is not a third dancing partner, so to speak. But I think it's valuable that we started the conversation talking about these, because, right, they're not the sort of standard parties that we have come to know today. And And so in some ways, they are these sort of like, I feel like there's a better word than third parties. Like maybe this shouldn't be called the third parties episode. Maybe it should be like minor characters in American history or something. Or like minor parties. The formal title is the third wheels. Because the wheels sort of don't, you know, with everything that that implies, right? Paul? I was was about to say, no, I think this is the third party because as soon, you can argue that as soon as we have those, you know, offshoots we have those splinters no one is doubting that we have a two-party system so we technically have a third party system because we have the democrats republicans and everyone who hates both i i was gonna say i think paul to go back to your hot take question which remind me again it was the first dual party election that happened in 1824 or i wouldn't say it was a Multi-party. dual party election in fact i think all four candidates crawford clit your boy henry clay Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams, they all claimed to be Democratic Democratic Republicans. Republicans. But the schism, like I say, and the schools of, you know, political philosophy coalesced around Jackson versus Adams, which would eventually, the Jackson followers would become the Democratic Party and would be the Democratic Party by 1832 at least. And then... They would harden into clay. I'm trying to make a joke out of that. <laughs> I see what you did there. They became the National Republicans, eventually the Whigs, and then the Republicans. You have to pause before saying Republicans because the, national, the term national disappeared. So really what you see, if you like apply rational theory, right? If there's a block of voters out there to be gotten, 
one party or another should kind of shift to absorb that voters. It's 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 almost kind of like you know, like in economics, right? If there's a if there's a consumer base out there that wants a product, somebody should come and offer that product. And for the parties, they should move their ideology to offer the the ideology or the views that the you know group of people want. So when you do have a group of people coalesce into a third party that says, you know what, we are not willing to suffer the political indignities of working with these people that we diametrically oppose. It's usually because of two reasons. One, utter alienation from the leadership of the political parties, right? They believe that both political parties are, you know, basically filled with rats, traitors, people who are out to get them, and they cannot work with them, or two, because they want something so specific done, but they feel so strongly about it, and neither leadership of the political parties are willing to do that because they don't view adopting that view as advantageous to them. Like the abolition of Freemasonry. <laughs> Poor well, Paul. And, 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 and all... Circle around back on the abolition of Freemasonry, though, like you can, you can see why this has to be a third party, right? Because if the leadership of both political parties are mostly made up of Masons, and you have to imagine that they're not going to say, hey, to absorb the anti-Masons into our political group, we're then going to forsake Masonry. That's just not a choice that people are likely to make. You have only so many secret handshakes you can teach. Right. It creates a pocket of alienation that cannot, in good conscience, be absorbed into any of the main political groups, and therefore they are forced into their own political party. And I will say in argument with you, James, because I have to have an argument with you with every single episode, there was a pocket of alienation called being poor and white. Poor and white, so you think you're entitled. That attached itself to Freemasonry with the help of demagoguery by men like Thurlow Weed and future respected politician William Seward. And that is what has doomed so many third parties. I think they set the pattern for third parties because there was a schism within it between political opportunists like Weed and Seward who wanted to merge with another party, uh, like say the nascent Whigs, and the rabid anti-Masons who actually did get elected in several states and started banning Masonry. Which really was a, a blow to the architecture community. <laughs> no more brick buildings, wood only. Can I put something forward? You tuck point, I swear to God. Can we, can we investigate the anti-Mason party to see if lumber interests were secretly funding it? <laughs> it was funded by Big Timber. <laughs> But I want to put this forward that at least through the 19th century, but I think we still see it today, these kind of like big waves of alienation and disaffection always, they don't always lead to a third party. They always fall along roughly the same lines. It's poor, white, usually rural, almost always against an urban elite. And I'll point to uh, the anti-Mason party the anti-abolitionist argument, and then later the bimetal currency debate. Like, these are all, the lines are drawn from the start. We just kind of rename the sides based on issue. And I'm really glad that you brought that point up, Tommy, because I think it's a drum that I, I have been beating, like, 
quietly sometimes, but also like very loudly. And I don't even play percussion. I feel like the story of American politics is actually the story of the American class system, right? And who is disenfranchised from participating in that class or in, in that political system based on your class. There's an element of anger to it because we kept insisting there's no noblesse oblige. No one has to take care of you. It's on you. But it also it's like this thing of people constantly come like, so I'm, I'm like a white man. So I'm like franchised. Right. And they're like, no, not really. It's like, right. oh, but, but not only that, but anger building to the point that somebody either within the group of angry people themselves or somebody who notices that, hey, there are a bunch of angry people over there decide to or get convinced to try to do something with that anger in the political realm. And that's what the anti-Masons did in 1832 when they ran a pres- ran William Wirt for president and he won the state of Vermont, the first third party to ever win electoral, electoral votes. And with that, I am driving a wooden stake through the heart of the anti-Masons. I'd like a brief shout out, though, and I don't know how it fits into your theory, Chelsea, although perhaps it does. I don't know enough about it. The Free Soil Party of 1848, which I believe nominated Martin Van Buren. If uh, third parties and political parties, period, are a function of class, was the Free Soil Party, if we know enough about it to actually have a discussion, did that come out of, was that purely ideological or was it also class-based? Well, I mean, a lot of the Free Soil uh party was sort of a uh, working class opposition to to slavery from like the rural whites of uh the north and this uh, who would try to compete with the free labor that the uh the the southerners had which mm-hmm. is you know we uh, went off and named the you know the jayhawkers in kansas during uh during that whole period. I love that first album, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would have to agree with Patrick, right? I think my theory holds up. I mean, okay. the the Free Soil Party ultimately comes out of the Mexican-American War and the ideas about slavery spreading across the entire Western United States. And it's mostly fear that white, lower maybe middle like nascent middle class working class people would have fewer opportunities out west right and so it Mm -hmm. it has it does have a little bit of an economic undertone to it so i don't think Patrick's wrong uh like i said i mean this is the one that i did not research obviously but they did (laughs) get some congressmen elected well and then they they ended up just merging with the uh, other disaffected Whigs to be the Republican Party uh, by yep. 1858. So they sort of transitioned from third party ideology to getting a little bit of power, and the party going, okay, you, we, we, we can, we can barter with that. Uh, correction to what I said earlier: I thought the Free Soil Party did win in some electoral votes. They did not, not a single one, but uh, they did collect. <laughs> they did get 10 percent of the popular vote. Yeah, really. not bad. Yeah. yeah. So, do they throw the election to future ice cream casualty Zachary Taylor? Zachary Taylor. Mm. Well, I I think 
not, because generally the Free Star leaders were opposed to the Democrats and not, um, not really the Whigs too much. Okay, I could be wrong there. Oh, As a side note, could I pitch that his flavor should be Zach Cherry Taylor? Oh, call us Ben and Jerry's. Call us. <laughs> Who started the Who started the No Nothing Party, Chelsea? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the. It wasn't just a nativist party. Mm-hmm. Uh, it that is largely one of their more. I I want to I want to say that it's the cloak that they wrapped themselves in. When your dog really? whistle is so loud that it becomes your main whistle. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> they are, if we want to talk about conspiracy theories, to me, the Know Nothing Party, and this is why it's so fascinating to me, the Know Nothing Party is truly the conspiracy party of the 19th century. Because they believed in a Romanist, right? Catholic conspiracy. Which makes the term Know Nothing really on the nose. They believed ultimately that there was a Romanist conspiracy to by Catholics who were largely immigrants, especially German immigrants who were fleeing persecution in Germany at the time. They were really worried that these immigrant Catholics would ultimately subvert civil and religious liberties in the United States by undermining Protestantism. They felt like because Catholics were united and controlled by the Pope, that the Pope would tell them how to vote. And then, you know, you would have swaths of immigrant Catholics voting in favor of or being influenced by a non-American source. Yeah, if you've been watching church news lately, I think we all understand that the Pope doesn't even have a good control of the cardinals, let alone everybody else. Yeah, I think I I forget if I've mentioned it on the show, but one of my favorite political cartoons of the 19th century is a know nothing cartoon uh, showing just an army of bishops yes. walking from uh, from Rome, diving into the water, and then coming up ashore in America as crocodiles. Yes. Oh. Well, I mean, when you're when you're speaking in Latin, but the words that you keep anything. coming out are "body and blood of Christ," you, you're you're gonna draw. You, you may draw some conclusions. Yeah, there's I, no place for crazy Latin. Yeah, no, I've I've got to say, I I think I think the no nothings were onto something. I, I think. That... <laughs> What's interesting to me is that between the Bavarian Illuminati, which inspired fear of the Masons, and the German Catholics, who terrified the future know nothing are are people just afraid of wearing later hosen is that one of our latent fears well, well i mean what I, are the I will other say it's also the irish but it's, i mean one of the uh, one of the other most successful third parties uh was the prohibition party which was also afraid of the germans so maybe they have something there i want to tack something on to something i said earlier that i feel like relates here i was talking about disenfranchised rural whites and that kind of thing I would say maybe the thing that they are disenfranchised by, if we're talking about like vested power, these are all conversations about who gets to be white. <laughs> oh my gosh. Can I go get my book that I was just talking I, about? Off Chelsea's book club. We were talking about it earlier. <laughs> oh God. I can't think of his first name. Um, his last name's Rodiger. Um, he writes a book called Working Towards Whiteness. 
it's later in the 19th century, but essentially his argument is that immigrants who might have been perceived as immigrants and therefore not white, they eventually gain whiteness through their labor because capitalism, right? You have now become white because you are contributing meaningfully to the economy. He has an earlier book, too. That was Working Towards Whiteness, colon, How America's Immigrants Became White, colon, The Strange Journey from Ellis Island to the Suburbs by David Rodiger. David Rodiger. He has two subtitles on that book. (laughs) What a move, David. If you want to know about how the Know Nothing Party led to the Civil War, watch Martin Scorsese's classic Gangs of New York. Oh, Mm, yeah. Right now and go do that. It's true, though. No, well. you know, and one thing I will say about the know nothings uh, is is New York is definitely a place where you can see <laughs> this sort of like fear of the Irish Catholic in Massachusetts, right? Which has had long been a bastion of Protestantism, but with the influx of Irish Catholics in Boston, you start to see that political power of Protestants they feel that it is threatened. And so uh, Massachusetts has some of the more stringent laws against that, that right, penalizes uh, Catholic folks. So that that worked. There aren't Catholics in Boston anymore. And there's certainly no Irish. (laughs) I I will actually follow up what Tommy said. You should go watch Gangs in New York, but you should leave this podcast running in the background on repeat uh, so that it just kind of racks up views for us. Both Chelsea and James. We're, okay, we're the war is over. Everything sucks, but suddenly everything, everything is cool. Everything does not great. suck. Something like sucks. Something's been done. emancipated. It's pretty good. After emancipated, the war, and then lie. they're then they're re, then they're economically re-enslaved, and that's once again that's a podcast that we will that's a podcast that will make Chelsea happy. But the for a different time. The more the most prominent third parties of the uh, in of the post-Civil you know, War era, the Gilded Age, shall we say, they have a far more economic focus than the zealots of the anti-Masons and the know-nothings. And that is because, here comes the hot take, I think that was a hit in 1994, there is a dominant industry in the United States, or a dominant economic force in the United States, a private one for the first time, and that would be the railroads. I think that's a sweeping generalization that has general truth to it, but perhaps is a little bit too sweeping. I think a lot of the the railroads are are kind of the the big bad guy from the Industrial Revolution. They're not the only bad guy, but they're oh, one of the so bad, guys bad guys like in every part of American life. Like and it, it impacts it because they they are essential infrastructure and it's it's really hard to overstate how essential railroads became when they were the only way to get from a to z or to move things around so the greenback party originated when people would form into groups called granges and they would attempt to get their states to pass granger laws and the federal government to pass granger laws that would attempt to impose price, you know, price limits and you know volume limits on the railroads. So that's why I think there's a very direct connection 
between the formation of the railroads and the, and the formation of those economically populist parties of the late 19th century, the Greenbacks and the, well, the populists. I would agree with James and disagree with you again, Paul. I... <laughs> two for two! I... <laughs> the, the point about monopolies, actually, as I'm thinking about it, is a good one when we think about railroads. Because yes. railroads, well, obviously there was lots of different railroad firms. Railroads are almost always a monopoly in their area, right? They're local monopolies. You don't have very often competing railroad lines serving community offering service to the same destinations maybe mm. big city to big city you would see that but if you're talking about like topeka kansas to wichita kansas you're probably talking about the union pacific right or you know one of those big you know it, it's going to be one railroad and so the railroad exercises a local monopoly to do the things that monopolists do which is rip people off right i mean that's that's what a monopoly does at the uh, same and, time, and, though, why is okay. a third party necessary? Because both the Republicans and Democrats have been bought by the railroads and other big business interests. Yes. Right. I mean, the reason that you start to see third parties, I think, especially in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, yes. is because the other two parties are so corrupt. People yes. feel alienated from them in terms of can these parties actually do anything? Yes. Are they that will help me? us? No, they're yeah. bought bought and sold by big business yeah. so that the only other political option is to form third parties especially when on the one hand like you said you've got these rural areas and they feel like they're getting taken because the cities are rising but what's going on in the cities a lot of people moving in the cities a lot of immigration in the cities a lot of poverty in the cities a lot of machines political machines in the cities and so while I, that's happening there's there's you know economic and technological developments that are in this, that I would also argue are the main reason that uh, in the end of the 19th century what necessitates the rise of two large economically populist parties appealing mainly to farmers is that one there's just a lot more farmers because the United States is gaining a lot more territory and two. Uh, technology is increasing farm yield, so there are more farmers, and they're getting, they're growing more grain than ever, and they are they are experiencing poverty because another, I, I, don't, I don't know that they're experiencing poverty. I feel like James is right; they're experiencing econ economic disenfranchisement with the rise of the futures system, and they're experiencing political disenfranchisement because the two-party system is in the pockets of big business well, why do they embrace <laughs> free silver and greenbacks as issues then i mean that was more about like inflation and oh like, don't make me do this again i was gonna say I'm waiting, for james. <laughs> I'm waiting for james on that question because he's he's the monetary guru but also overwhelming technological changes as we get into the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries Man, do we see that? And something tells me that rises of certain political third parties might coordinate with some of those eras where there's a lot of tension about a, a lot of tension about a lot of this newer technology, whether it's rural or urban. Uh, my favorite third party candidate is Victoria Woodhull. 
Uh, Victoria Woodhull became technically the first female presidential candidate in 1872. I say technically because she was not actually old enough to run in 1872, so she wasn't legally on any ballots. And she didn't have a real vice presidential candidate. She only had one. She she she, uh, nominated Frederick Douglass against his will to be her vice presidential candidate. Uh, He was so busy that a white woman would take advantage of a black man now. So at least that was done. Of course, of course then. Uh, but yeah, she was with the, the Equal Rights uh, Party, which was dedicated to, of course, women's suffrage. Uh, she actually went before Congress uh, to argue that the 14th Amendment applied to women as well as, as uh, African-Americans. And uh, yeah, don't know why they didn't uh, agree with that. Hmm. Uh, she, I mean, ultimately, she wasn't terribly successful because she liked picking fights with other suffragettes, including uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, because she accused her uh, her uh, husband of philandering. Who who said never a problem again? Uh, <laughs> I, I did. Mean, yeah, all, all the time. Um, feminists uh, yelling at and disagreeing with other feminists. Yeah, never a problem again. But that and, and that also Susan B. Anthony wasn't like a paragon of virtue and <laughs> don't don't read some of the comments she made to the press about race because they are not gonna hold up so well. As as Andrea Dworkin once said of her fellow fem- to her fellow feminists, eat shit, bitches. No one ever said sisterhood would be easy. Victoria Woodhull. She looks good in a gown, and the man can't keep her down. There will never be a female stockbroker, Victoria Woodhull. Never over my dead body. That can be arranged. (laughs) And I hope you smash the glass ceiling on your way down. She's here for free love, and she's ready to rise above. Victoria Woodhull, you don't meet a woman like you every day captain blood you know i'm in the market for a new husband i think i can squeeze you in after i testify to congress she's heading the fight for women's rights what's the meaning of this this can't be right i'll tell you what's right women's rights what like to vote because of the 14th amendment why, why, horse feathers and balderdash! <laughs> With two-time Academy Award winner Shelley Winters as Harriet Beecher Stowe. This vile jailbird, this impudent witch, will she stop at nothing? <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop, baby. I'm here to party. Equal rights party, that is. Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, get her! Now you know why they call it suffrage. And starring Isaac Hayes as Frederick Douglass. Victoria Woodhull, you're crazy. Ain't no way I'm agreeing to be your vice president. Good, because I ain't asking. I'm telling you. You're too young and too female to even run for office. Exactly. You'll never see it coming. (laughs) Victoria Woodhull, you are one bad mother. Shut your mouth. Coming to a voting booth near you, 
November 1872. Linda Blair is Victoria Woodhull in Mrs. Satan. Free love or die trying. So we were at the in late 19th century. There was a lot of talk about a lot of populism and third, were there third? I mean, sort of, there were certainly, there were certainly populist movements within the major political parties, but there were other, weren't there other third party populist based? Well, I mean, you have the populist party. Which yeah, that's good. Yeah, the populist hey, party well, did, did well Peter's for Peter's itself in in the 1892 election, right? I mean, they won four states, states right? And so inter- okay. In terms of a, you know a a nascent political organization, that's pretty damn good, right? And they clearly had a, a base to support. They clearly had because they were kind of emerged out of the Grange movement, which was itself a very much grassroots, like literally grassroots <laughs> effort. You know, they had that network of, of local people. But then like, this is kind of the, the point that I'm making is that then you get to 1896 and the Democrats are like, well, we can't really win because of the electoral math here unless we can get these populists on side. And so then, you know, our good friend WJB goes out and gives the cross <laughs> a gold speech. Um, and who, who was a mentor to William Jennings? Brian, Brian, Brian. None other than two-time failed presidential candidates, James B. Weaver, and uh, Weaver, and of course William Jennings Bryan would best his mentor by losing three times instead of two, yes, and on, and on a major party candidate, Weaver ran for the Greenbacks in 1880, and there were many Green. I don't know about you know state, uh, but there were several Greenback polit- uh, representatives in Congress, Greenback and Greenback sympathetic. And after the Greenback started tearing themselves apart because there there was a slightly too populist element of the Greenbacks. One of their major organizers, his biggest cause was opposing Chinese immigration. Yeah, there it is. Yep. There you go. So you had so you had, you know, rural white populism hand in hand with racism yet again. But the Greenbacks collapsed. The populists formed from the rose from the ashes of the Greenback Party, nominated James B. Weaver once again. And James B. Weaver, although he did not think he had a chance of winning, was a very optimistic person. And he is actually the one who pioneered electioneering. He actually traveled, he pressed the flesh, he wandered the country making speeches. And as we all know, in the era of the front porch campaign, that was not the style. So Weaver not only had an influence on ways that the Democratic Party could lose multiple elections, he actually did revolutionize modern politics. Pretty cool, actually. So when the Bible says the bowels of the saints have been refreshed by thee, God is telling us that the glutton shall be punished for his lack of moral and dietary fiber. Amen. Amen. I have good news, brethren of Fumblebuck Baptist Church. You are about to meet the next president of the United States. I thought this was a church, not a public square. 
Shut up and play your organ, dear. Our special guest is America's most Christian politician. His new book, A Call to Action, is a trumpet that topples the wall between church and state. As nominee of the People's Party this fall, he shall slaughter both Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison like the fatted calves they are. I give you Congressman James B. Weaver. Thank you, good Christians of Fumblebuck. And thank you, Reverend Theocratic, and your goodly wife, Mrs. Bureaucratic, for this opportunity to preach. I'm a believer, Congressman Weaver. As followers of Christ, you all know that America has strayed from the Christian principles of our founding fathers. We need a political party that can sanctify America. Not the Democratic Party, which I joined and then left. Not the Republican Party, which I joined and then left. Not even the Greenback Party, which I joined and would probably have left by now if it hadn't collapsed in 1888. No, it is only the People's Party that can stop our national descent into perfidy. As Christians, we are tired of seeing the wealthy and powerful flout the strictures of Scripture. We are tired of the crime and corruption that pollutes the streets of our cities. We are ready to make America godly again. Vote for me, James B. Weaver of the People's Party, so that I might govern this nation by Christian principles. As president, I shall establish a Department of Labor. As president, I shall pass a constitutional amendment that mandates the popular election of U.S. Senators. As president, I shall end the gold standard and reduce farmers' crippling debt by unleashing the healing powers of inflation. Um, Congressman Weaver, maybe you should skip the economics lecture and talk a little bit about sin? I am talking about sin. Our nation is run by merchants and money changers like the ones Jesus drove from the temple. Sure, but I think my flock would rather hear about sins of the flesh. You know, alcohol, gambling, fornication. Reverend Craddock, didn't you read my book? From cover to cover. None of the pages in between, though. Honor thy husband, dear. Weaver, I shouldn't have to read your book. If the title is a call to action, a God-fearing man like me should agree with everything in it. Reverend Craddock, your duty as a man of God is to fight for economic equality and social justice. My duty as a man of God is to enforce personal morality. You, sir, are not a good Christian. No, you, sir, are not a good Christian. Actually, you could both stand some improvement. (gasps) Jesus Christ! Hey, now I don't take your name in vain. Reverend Craddock, it is true that the Bible establishes rules for personal morality, but can you really condemn others when in your heart you covet the Sunday school teacher, and also sometimes on Wednesdays? I never claimed I was without sin. 
neither has anyone else. And Congressman Weaver, can you really claim to be a champion of economic equality when you helped the U.S. government steal Oklahoma from the Indians? But, but my lord, the, the Indians are heathens. Now, I don't remember saying help the poor, but go ahead and cheat the heathens. America will only be a Christian nation when it obeys all of my teachings. Does, does that mean I'm going to win the election this fall? Weaver, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a third-party candidate to enter the president's mansion. But you'll win a few states. That's miraculous enough. See you when I come again! What did he mean about the Sunday school teacher, dear? Is there something I should know about you and Mr. Plumtree? Stop taking the word of God so literally, dear. But but it does lead to, like you said, in 1860, there were how many political, how many parties that were actually trying to win, which leads to like a. Well, a it's fundamental... arguable if they were trying to win, Joe. Well, but so but there's a fundamental question we always ask about the presidents when we look at them is how badly do they want to be a president? The ancillary question to all of these third parties, and one that I'm constantly fascinated by, particularly in the move, like the third parties of the 20th and 21st centuries, is. In the immortal words of the penguin in the in the second Batman movie from the Michael Keaton era, do you really think you can win? It's a pretty good DeVito. Oh, thank you. I like it. You know, and because because again, because we know we we seem to have established that one of the reasons third parties exist is are often common ideals, but the general existence of a political party of general political parties in general is to have or maintain or manage or try to get power so if that's the goal sometimes third party third parties don't seem to be a really efficient vessel to do that they seem they seem to be wanting more interested in gaining influence and power so least a, power. a couple of, a, a couple of points on that so first we we have to contrast third parties with in the united states with third parties in other countries mm -hmm. right where you know it, it, especially if you look at countries that have parliamentary systems um third parties can be very influential in terms of what actually gets done and a lot of this happen is because the executive power is vested within the legislative right so in a parliamentary system the prime minister and gets to exercise his executive authority as long as he has the confidence of parliament or whatever they call their legislature. Or the political party in power. Right. And so if there's no majority in the legislature, then you have to create a coalition. And so oftentimes you see in parliamentary systems, the party with the largest block kind of goes searching around its nearest ideological neighbors to try to find somebody that they can cozy up with to form a governing coalition. And oftentimes that comes with strings attached. You're going to give us this many seats in cabinet. You're going to approach for these policies. And so in that way, these parties, despite not winning elections, can influence the nature of national policy in their respective countries by becoming part of governing coalitions at various points. Sometimes you don't even need to be that big of a party if a, if a party is close to a majority. And I think you see that like, with the Ulster Unionists in, in Great Britain, and how even though that they were a, a relatively small block, a lot of times they found themselves in 
governing coalitions with the Tories and were able to kind of pull, um, you know, Irish home rule policy the way that they wanted it to go. Um, in the United States, I think third parties oftentimes start out with this idea like this is what we want to get done or this is how we feel about things. And they don't imagine that the two party system can really shift because oftentimes these people have been trying to beat down the door of political change for a long time and they have not had success in doing that. And therefore, they start to form a third party. And I think what they imagine is, well, no, we're not going to win right now we're just potatoes but over time we'll convince the country of the righteousness of our cause but i think what they end up finding is they succeed right there's kind of there's one way two ways it can go one is they don't succeed they don't convince the country of the righteousness of their cause and they die an ignominious death um the second way is that they do start to make some progress people start to say hey these guys have a point and of course, the much more well-funded, much more well-organized existing political parties say, yoink, we're just going to pull your ideological ideas right from under you and incorporate them as part of our agenda. And then the party dies an ignominious death because its thunder has been stolen. And we really haven't talked about the way that the, the Democratic and Republican parties act as gatekeepers to try to keep the other parties out, but they they absolutely do do that. Hey, bada, 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 bada. Go Reds. Strike that sucker out. Come on, Blue, steal third, steal third. Go, go, go. Ah, uh, Blues are a bunch of thieves. You stole that home run from us. Who are you calling a thief? Stealing bases is a legitimate... Oh, for Pete's sake, what is that ruckus? Seriously? Another minor leaguer trying to hoard it in our game again? Who is it this time? Hi, Red. Hi, Blue. As you can hear, the people are clamoring for me and my buddies to join your league. <laughs> Sorry, man. Our league is uh, pretty well packed. Oh, it is? How many teams are in your league? Two. The Reds and the Blues. How is that packed? Well, there's just no room for upstats. It drains resources on the league. That's right. You got any sponsors? Sponsors? Yeah, sponsors. You know, advertisers who will build you a stadium so they can put their name on it. Someone to back you. Pay for uniforms, equipments, hot dogs, mascots, ball girls, the like. I, uh, no, not yet, but I'm sure I can get some. <laughs> how, how deep is your bullpen? <laughs> I, well, it's just me right now, but, but we got some decent outfielders scattered across a few states. Well, you got to have an identifiable mascot and a color. What's your color? I'm kind of paisley. With a mauve striping. Dads, what a motley, confused, painful color combo. Kids, you gotta have a single, solid, bold color. But my colors combine the disparate factions of my fan base. I'm a blend of disenfranchised players. We've got lots of diversity, with an equitable cross-section of lefties, righties, screwballers. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have what it takes to be in the big leagues. So what does it take to get into the big leagues? Being in, in the, the big, big leagues. leagues. With only two teams in the entire league? That's right. And you only play each other the whole season? That's right. So if I want to play, I have to join one of your teams? Well, that depends. I mean, you have been draining fans from the league, so I don't know that either of us really appreciate you just jumping on our bandwagon. Bandwagon? 
You just told me it's the only way I can play at all. Come on, I'm a decent shortstop. I have a respectable batting average. Well, you have to play by our rules. I know the rules of baseball. No, no. The rules of my team. Or my team. Wait, you each play by different rules? Oh, well, uh, some of us play by actual rules. Others toss out the rule book altogether and create chaos on the, the diamond. The only rule that matters is the one that wins. Hold on. So if you were each playing by different rules, how do you know who wins? Uh, the fans let us know. Oh, but the fans have been asking me to join, so... Whoa, 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 whoa there, Scamp. You can't just go directly to the fans. But, but, but you just said... Ignore the rabble. Yeah, sure, every now and then we get some pissed off folks that get bored cheering for the same two teams over and over. Exactly. So, why not? Because you gotta go through the league. Uh, look, kid, we spent a lot of time and money building these franchises. We're not just going to let some punk team come in and draw attention away from the major players. Go back to the minors. Maybe in a couple... A dozen. A hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> then you can assimilate into the big leagues. Look, I've been working on some innovative plays that will shake up this league. Let them play! Let them play! Let them play! Let them play! Oh, and if I don't play, that rabid fan base up there in the bleachers is going to cancel all their season tickets. Uh, tell you what, kid. I'll let you in the game. Sweet. Just this one inning. Show us what you got, and maybe we'll sign you up as a pinch hitter. Batter up. Here's the windup and the pitch. Ow! Kid. That was a bummer of a beanball. Oh, you did that on purpose. Hey, hey Ump, you saw that, didn't you? Just, just, yeah, Ump, why don't you show the kid to the locker room? <laughs> hey, I don't need, what, that's not, get your hands off me. Well, you just wait until next year. I'll be back. <sighs> Gotta admire his spunk, though. Uh, we're gonna blacklist him, right? Oh, totally. He'll never play in this town again. So, where were we? Uh, you were about to steal Turt, and I'm going to get in the umpire's face and kick dirt at him and call the whole game a him. Hey, Ump! Kick those troublemakers out, would you? Good thing we control who's allowed in the stadium. We'd never finish these games. Oh, right. Uh, thank goodness there's only professionals in this league. I think when we, I mean, in, I don't know, it feels like the idea between the initial idea of the third parties were maybe there were more annoyances that either annoyances or it should have been bigger, but it sounds, but we're, we now we're kind of getting into this broader question of how do you influence where things go societally and even politically you know why why presidents it is they are at the top they're helpful they're organizational tools and we elect them through parties like it or not it, it we may not like the game but it's the game we got and so it this is kind of helping me explore a lot of these questions on a purely personal level again 
hopefully people who listen to us to have the same thing while also laughing. And it's also why as we start to, as the number of presidents we're discussing start to go to a precious few, we're realizing that the conversations, like any good conversations, take some really weird tangents and they're fun. And we can write comedy about them and stuff. Please come back, won't you? Download part two of The Third Wheels at your friendly local podcast purveyor and download shop. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bucola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on live365.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.